Thank you to the children's choir and every parent and helper and leader who helped that to happen. It was beautiful. I got to hear it three times. Just kept getting better. It is a privilege to have Mark and Olya here and to share with them. Last night, I took a a memory tour through the photos of a trip Nancy and I made in 2019. And Mark and Olya hosted me and they and Nancy, they introduced us to their ministries. And we we just had a joyous uh, blast for a week. Uh, I found out how competitive Mark is when they took us to a restaurant that specialized in ribs, and I tried to keep up with him, and I think I did. There was a photo of Mark and me with a whole bunch of bones on our plate, and you'll never see that photo. (laughs) Um, But the trip was one of introduction to what they do in a foreign environment, and and it was optimistic, it was positive, it was full of, of happy vibes and all that. And no one would have envisioned, even as they came back in January of 2020, uh, looking at how far away the Eastern Front is from where they are, no one would envision what has happened in these last months and years. And so we look forward to hearing from them. They're going to be here for a while. We got them up as soon as they got in. They haven't been in very long. Uh, His brother, Eric, and sister-in-law, Lindsay, they are here this morning. I'm not sure where they are, but it's rumored. There they are in the back. And um, Eric and Lindsay, they serve also with Josiah Venture, but in the country of Hungary. And they've been instrumental and helpful in resourcing those who are in the Ukraine. We also have the first hour, Ben and Anna Samuelson were here, their home as well, for a short period of time. And they serve with Missionary Aviation Fellowship, MAF. He's a pilot in the Congo. And uh, their home, with instructions from MAF, get some rest. We have Brian and Rachel Smith that are here this morning. They've been home for a while. They serve in Cameroon, and they immediately volunteered to serve on our children's ministry team, and you're going to be hearing from them in the near term, in the near future. And uh, they're with Wycliffe. And then who else do we have in town? I have it right here. We have, oh yeah, how could I, how could I forget? We have the Turners that are in the house, Caleb and Maria. They're home from the Black Forest Academy. And there are four generations of that family that are here on a, on a regular basis. In fact, that's a characteristic of all five of those couples. They either grew up here or they still have family who are here. And so as they've traveled and as they've served and they say yes to serve elsewhere, they they miss out on a lot of things that are special that are right here in a place called home. But God has called them and we want to support them in any and every way that we possibly can. On a personal note, I hope that these next days, the next days of this week, bring the kind of memories you're going to want to remember. Uh, The kind of memories that you treasure that are full of relationship and experiences centered around Jesus Christ. Wednesday is a momentous day. Uh, 
Do you know what Wednesday is? It's the winter solstice. You know what that means? That means there are more hours of night that day than any day in the northern hemisphere on that date. Which means that there are fewer hours of daylight on Wednesday than any place else in the northern hemisphere. And where we live, daylight is a relative term. So that if you get it, you want to enjoy it and enjoy it fully. And then this Saturday, we have Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve service, where we'll gather in a darkened room. And that's symbolic as we talk about light and darkness. And then we see the contrast as we light the candles in the darkness and we sing words of praise to the goodness of God and we see the contrast between light and dark. And then we gather again. We are compressed into one service at 10 a.m. Christmas Sunday. We look forward to gathering with you as we sing hymns and again celebrate the arrival of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But Saturday night is a candle lighting service where we celebrate that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He's the light of the world. God knows we need the light of Jesus right now. Whoever you are, wherever you are. That's our subject this morning. If you would, with me, turn to the last book in the Old Testament written by the prophet Malachi, who has much to say about God, much to say about us and our future, our our destiny, that in God's time, in His plan, our destiny is assured, and He pictures our destiny as just right around the corner, though it could be a long ways off. As we've looked these last weeks at God's redemption story that begins at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, and it finds its fulfillment in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. And so Jesus was born. He wasn't born in a vacuum. Uh, It it wasn't a surprise to uh, those in heaven. In that before the foundation of the world, this was God's purpose to send His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we've started where the narrative begins, and we followed it with the velocity of the truest of true stories leading in this trajectory, this high point of the salvation that has secured us in Jesus Christ. He is loving. God is powerful. But instead, the all-loving, all-powerful God became like His creation. God, the Son, without giving up His deity, He became human like us. Unlike us, He is God. He is without our sin. He became our sin. And He took on our judgment at the cross, crucified, raised to life, For the forgiveness of sin. Jesus was born on purpose. The book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, it it starts happy and it, it ends pretty happy. But 
these are the last recorded words of the revelation of God to his people in the book of Malachi. After Malachi, there's a period of, of silence, so to speak, that's probably 430 years before the Lord reveals again. And this time he speaks through his representative, the messengers he sends. He speaks to Mary, to Joseph. He speaks to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. He speaks to Elizabeth. He discloses the purpose and the intent of the birth of the son John the Baptist. And they disclose to Elizabeth when Mary came to visit so that she also sang this, these words of praise. And the baby, John the Baptist in the womb, the spirit catalyzed the baby to leap for joy. After the longest wait, God speaks. He speaks through his word. His son calls his name, among other names, word. Word summarizes God's self-disclosure through Jesus to us. To know the son is to know the father. To know Jesus is to know God. And that's where the Old Testament anticipates and looks forward and explains to us as we engage in the book of Malachi chapter 1. We find out much about God and about God's people. First, what do we discover? In Malachi 1-2, we find that God loves his people. That's a warm beginning. God reminds them, he says in verse 2 of chapter 1, for I have loved you. Well, their reply is one of incredulity. Uh, how have you loved us? Well, that's the story of the Old Testament is God's love and his covenant with his people. God gave them Moses to rescue them, to to, to lead them out of slavery and to lead them to a promised land. God gave to Moses his revelation in the law. And on top of the mount, when the Lord gave to Moses his revelation, the law, he also disclosed who he is. He is loving. He is kind. He is patient. He is just. So that his love continued. It, it showed up in tangible and practical ways where the the Lord God provided for them in their hour of greatest need. Even when they had disobeyed him or turned their back on him, the Lord would say, return to me, come back to me. When his people were prone to, to leaving or to abandon this God who has declared himself as a loving and gracious and kind God. He gave to them Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet of God who regularly performed these extraordinary miracles that only God could do. They were abundant. They were remarkable. You couldn't ignore how God intervened with his people through the ministry and the life of Elijah and Moses. And Elijah would roll forward into the New Testament. So we find Jesus in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's got the three closest disciples with him. 
And they're Peter, James, and John, and they are with Jesus. And then suddenly Jesus is transfigured, and you see his glory that's disclosed and revealed to them. And they're overwhelmed. And I want us to remember how the three disciples were overwhelmed on that mount. Because that would also continue. That would continue into Revelation chapter 1, especially when John saw the glory of the resurrected Christ. And John falls on his face, and there is an element of what the Bible calls fear. We're going to see that again this morning. It's where Jesus discloses who he really is, and it's almost too great for our nervous system to handle. So we think we're going to be just fine. But he is the one who reassures us that because of Christ, we're fully and totally accepted. So we see that God has demonstrated his faithfulness and his love to his people. He warns his people repeatedly, first the ten tribes, the northern tribes of Israel, and then the the two southern tribes. The two southern tribes, he warns that if you are defiant and you rebel and you continue to turn away from me, this is what God is going to do. And God does what he said he would do. So they are taken into captivity and... It's a horrific, horrific experience. Jerusalem, some of it was burned and left to rubble. The wall was destroyed. There would have been ashes and the signs of a warring army and a siege of destruction. And that was still in the memories of the people that Malachi writes to. The people were taken off to Babylon. And it's there that God gave them more people who spoke for God. There was Ezekiel and Daniel. Jeremiah writes a powerful letter, Jeremiah 29, to the captives in Jerusalem. And he speaks to his people and he calls his people back to him. Return to me. Repent. Some of them do. He promises a return. They end up returning to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild the temple. And then they re. They rebuild the wall, Nehemiah. Then the Lord sends Ezra, the priest, to Jerusalem. And Ezra becomes known. Man, this would be great to be able to legitimately write this on your tombstone and for it to be true. In Ezra 7.10, it says, there are three characteristics here of Ezra the priest. He had set his heart to study the law of God. So he set his heart, he disciplined his life, he controlled his impulses, and he studied the law of the Lord. But that's not all. He practiced it. So that what he studied and discovered wasn't just stuffed into a container somewhere and forgotten. He lived with his life what he would say with his lips. And that's what he says And the last part, the description, to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So if you were to go to Nehemiah chapter 8, we're not going to, but you see that uh, he had a long and fruitful ministry in Jerusalem. And so God, he continued in a way, in a human sense, to chase his people, to continue pursuing them, to invite them, come back to me. And so in 1-2, Malachi, he says, I have loved you. He has left countless proofs and evidences of his faithful love. 
But their reply is somewhat incredulous. How do we know that you love us? Well, that's the warm opening that I talked about. Because what follows in much of chapter 2 and much of chapter 3 is a series of indictments. We're not going to go into all of them. But the Lord says, basically, I have this against you. And that's the second discovery we make in these verses in chapters 1 through 3 is that God's own people betray the God who loves them. An indictment. Malachi 1.8. What's the indictment? When you sacrifice, what do you do? You present the blind for sacrifices. Is that not evil? Well, in other words, they gave their cast off to God. They, they didn't want a blind animal, so they, they gave it to the Lord. Same idea in Malachi 1.13. You give to the Lord leftovers, that which you don't want for yourselves. So it's not really a sacrifice if it doesn't cost anything, if it doesn't cost us anything. It's, it's one of those freebies, you know, that, that we give away and we don't really want what we're giving. Then in chapter 2, the indictment is in verse 11 that they gave their hearts to another God other than the one true God. And in so doing, they violated God's covenant, His agreement that He established with them. And they wanted blessing, but refused to listen to Him for refused to obey him, and they refused to love him. And then he asked them in chapter 3, verse 8, Will you rob God? That's what he asks of them in chapter 3, verse 8. But chapter 3, verse 7 has God's great invitation that is fully expressed in the New Testament he says this in Malachi 3.7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes. So what's their history? God spoke. They blew them off. They did what they wanted. They rationalized their disobedience. So you turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Great invitation. Return to me. Come back right now. Turn, he says to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, now here's the pushback. You say, how shall we return? Which brings us to the last chapter of the last book in the Old Testament. And we see and discover of God in Malachi 4, 1 through 3. God judges truly. God does justice perfectly. Even today, we may look around and wonder, why does God allow the things that occur and that happened, not just here, but in our world? I mean, I can't imagine what the transition and transformation of the Ukraine is for Ukrainian believers is they look around and they see things that you and I probably have never seen and hopefully never will. And you ask, how long, O oh Lord, 
Will you allow this to continue? But here we have this, for instance, of God who does justice. He is alone fully informed about the human heart now and forever. He is the one who is eminently, incomparably qualified to judge evil and to do justice. And that he does. So we see in verse 1 a description of an event. It's an event during that day. And that day, in a sense, is still yet future to us, though the word picture of this judgment, their great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents had seen a harbinger or beginning of what God's justice and judgment look like. So here it is, verse 1, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. There is a yet future event in the return of the Lord. The first coming of the Lord is at the birth in Bethlehem. And the second coming follows his life and death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. Seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he will return. He will return for his people, those who have confessed their heartfelt faith in this Jesus. Not any Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible who was born with human flesh, fully God, and lived our life, and he died our death. And so he will return, and he will establish what I prefer to call the visible kingdom. It's I-can-see-it sort of visible. And he will return on a day like no other, an event it's described as burning like a furnace. And the object of that burning are those who are arrogant and those who are evil. And some of your Bibles say those who are proud and those who are evil. I like arrogant better because arrogant can't be used as a synonym for anything else. You don't want to be arrogant in the eyes of God. And so he will do justice on the arrogant and on the evil. And so the people would, in contrast, I mean, the imagery is like Jerusalem and Babylon. But the imagery is contrasted in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Southern Oregon, sheep country, cattle country. I lived my teenage years there. Beautiful green meadows in the spring sprinkled with splashes of yellow daffodils everywhere. And lambs kicking up their heels and running around just discovering what those four appendages are for. They're happy. You see that with the calves. It's like this is what I was made for. And there is a carefreeness to us and to it. And that is a, a yet future expectation. But for those who fear my name, what is this fear? Well, it includes reverence and it includes worship. But if we take our cue from Paul on the road to Damascus, 
from the three disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration, and then most of all, from the one who knew Jesus as well as anyone in his earthly life, saw his resurrected body. And that's the Apostle John. And you read the account between John who knew him, and there is so much more to Jesus than we know. And I think that's where the fear of God comes in. There is so much more to the glorified, resurrected Jesus than you and I can possibly know right here, right now. But that fear incorporates this sense of, I am not God. We are not God. He alone is God. He alone can save. He alone is the one who provides ultimate, total, and complete forgiveness in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is described as the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. So that He embodied righteousness. As He was being baptized by John, John demurred and said, Hey, I shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus says, Yeah, you should. He said, go ahead, this needs to be done for me to fulfill all righteousness, which he did. You and I have not. But through faith in him, now he places his righteousness to our account, but it's not static. It doesn't grow stale. It's not something you just stuff in something and that's it. His righteousness then is catalyzed and activated by the Spirit of God and the Word of God within us so that as we mature and grow, we become more and more like Him. That's righteousness. And it's something that is practical in this life, but it's made perfect when we see our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that Jesus is described as the Son of Righteousness, And that son of righteousness brings what? Healing in its wings. So imagine the sun. Imagine rays of sunlight dancing through the clouds, reaching and touching something on earth. It's the healing that is in the wings as a word picture. As a metaphor, this is what Jesus does, is he heals our soul. He forgives us. He gives us significance. He gives us value. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. For the one who confesses Jesus as Savior, he gives us his spirit. His spirit opens our eyes. So that now we can understand enough of who he is and what he says. And he gives us the strength to follow him. When I was in my teens, I spent three summers with my grandparents in the hottest inhabited place in the United States. You've never been there. You don't need to go. I slept in the east bedroom. There was a window from corner to corner. And at 5 a.m. every morning... Without an alarm, a 13-year-old boy woke up because the sun is pouring into the room. It's a new day. You can hear the coo of doves. You could smell the aroma of bacon coming from my grandmother's kitchen. Sunlight and bacon go together. And then you could hear her singing hymns 
out of gratitude for the new day. It was one of those safe places, one of those memories you can look back on. And you can enjoy it in that moment. But it's, that's just a harbinger. That, that is a, a brief, shimmery flicker of the fully orb experience that the follower, follower of Christ will have when we're in the presence of this Jesus, the Son of Righteousness. Zacharias, remember him, father of John the Baptist, he tells this announcement of how John the Baptist is going to have this ministry. It's fulfilled. It's extraordinary. It's John the Baptist. He, he gets to baptize Jesus and he gets to say to the world, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Well, Zacharias prophesies about his boy. And he talks about the announcement that his boy will get to deliver to the world. And there he calls Jesus. What? Sunrise from on high. That's the word picture. That is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The sunrise from on high. And so the book of Malachi, the first few verses of chapter 4, describe God judging truly and righteously. And the sunrise will shine, Zechariah says, to those who sit in darkness on the edge of death. And the purpose of the sunrise from on high is to guide us and to show us so that we can walk in the way of peace. It began with the birth of Jesus and it's fulfilled at the return of Jesus. But there's more of God's justice and judgment in verse 3. And this is not the kind of statement we want to gloss over. It's not the kind of verse that we just kind of skip and go on to happier thoughts. This is real. Verse 3. You will tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So they don't have to look too far back in the rearview mirror to see ashes. Well, this is said yet future. This is yet to come. And this is what the Lord will do. He will judge those who reject the Son. And then the positive. Verse 4, we see the positive. God promises His presence to those who love Him. Verses 4 and 5, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded in him, or in Horeb, for all Israel. So that's where the Lord gave the Ten Commandments. But the Lord disclosed himself to Moses. Moses said, show me your glory. And that was a time when Moses didn't really know what he was asking. And the Lord says, you can't stand it full on to see my glory. I think that's where fear comes from. So instead, the Lord showed him a muted version of his glory and described who he is to Moses. And he gave Moses his law to his people and he blessed his people. But there's more. Verse five, behold, I am going to send you. This is future. You Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Who is this Elijah that will come? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, the Bible identifies 
In fact, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah, an Elijah-type figure. And Jesus identifies him. And curiously, the religious elite asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah because of this, this verse? Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist said no. <laughs> he said he's not Elijah in the flesh, but Jesus is talking about an Elijah-like person will come. There are some people who think that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are Moses and Elijah. But we do know Jesus identified John the Baptist as an Elijah-type figure. They dressed similarly. They didn't have much of a wardrobe. They wore the same thing every day. They ate the same diet on a daily basis. And they had the same style of speech. It was unvarnished. You know, sometimes you walk away from somebody and you go, well, now what did they just say? Not so with these guys. They, they speak and you don't have to guess. They speak and, you know, we're left with, oh, no. What do we do now? Or we're left with, oh, I heard him say that, but I don't believe it. I have my own truth. Well, not these boys. These guys, God spoke to them, and as God spoke to them, they spoke this unvarnished, in your eyes, what I like to call a fastball high and inside that makes you dunk back from the plate. That's these guys. An Elijah-type figure. And then we see the close. We see the close of those who reject this return, this turning to God. For us, that turning to God would be turning to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But here we see that there is a, a tragic consequence. And that is in verse 6. There's a benefit and there's a consequence. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and spite the land with a curse. The first breakage with the father was Adam and Eve with their father. That was the first rift. That was passed on so that it became generational breakage. So Cain kills Abel. Brother kills brother. That continues to roll forward it, so that Adam and Eve, at one point in their blessing, they had a perfect marriage. They understood each other on everything. They didn't throw rocks at each other. They, didn't, they, they had an absolutely perfect marriage, and that's how God envisioned it. But we broke it, and we still break it. So that it's not at all uncommon for adult parents to carry great grief. Because though the adult parents or parent has a vital and alive relationship with God through faith in Jesus and assurance of forgiveness of sin, uh, their child may not. Their child may have gone off like in Luke 15, the story of the gracious father and the son who left and did his own thing. And the father is looking for him, desiring the son, ready, recognizing the son. When he begins to return, totally bankrupt, and the father runs to him. And it's that image of restoration that God offers in Christ for two, the parent and the child, or brother and brother, or sister and sister. 
together to seek Christ, reconciled with God through faith in Jesus Christ, reconciled with one another, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But it's not the way it is. Which is why the last phrase of chapter 4 is the warning phrase. That the alternative is a land that is cursed. It's a place that we don't want to be. So the best of news is that the sunrise from on high has visited, and the New Testament trumpets the sunrise from on high, and it introduces Jesus as light of the world. And I want to close with the opening couple of verses of John chapter 1. We'll look more at this on Saturday, the Christmas Eve service. But John, the prologue of John is Stunning. It's like every single word is, is just loaded. That, that rightly understood, we, we marvel and we stop and we listen. But check out John chapter 1, and it connects. It says of Jesus, who is Word, but it says of Him, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. There is no life without light. He is life. But he's more than a flesh and blood right now life. He is a fully robust, restored relationship with the Father life. And he is light. So that he is a light unto the path of the one who follows him and who seeks him. And you and I need the light of Jesus. Why? Because our world is in darkness. But his light penetrates the darkness of our world, the darkness of our culture, and even the darkness of our heart. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Comprehend is better translated overcome. Darkness, the darkness did not overcome the light that God gives in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. And that is worth celebrating, not just this week, but every week. So it's also worth singing about who he is. And it's so right that we would thank God for who he is, what he's done, and how we can know him. Will you pray with me? Father, such a privilege to call you Father, dearest Father. To to be able to enter into your presence because you bought us with the life of your son. Thank you for hearing us, for accepting us. Thank you for, in Christ, forgiving us. Forgiving our lives here, meaning and purpose to reflect the light of Jesus, to walk in the light of Jesus. Father, may that be true of each of us. In the name of Jesus, amen.